Our sermon text for today is from the Gospel of Mark, chapter 5, verses 1 through 20. If uh, you're new to us, um, last week we're in Mark 4, uh, at the end of Mark 4. Next week we're going to be in Mark 5, 21 and forward. This is what we do every week. We come back and we let the Bible speak. We let the text that is before us speak. We, so we don't try to speak out of the will of man, but out of the words of God. So we turn today to Mark 5, 1 through 20. They came to the other side of the sea, to the country, to the country of the Gerasenes. And when Jesus had stepped out of the boat, immediately there met him out of the tombs, a man with an unclean spirit. He lived among the tombs, and no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain, for he had often been bound with shackles and chains, but he wrecked the chains apart, and he broke the shackles in pieces. No one had the strength to subdue him. Night and day, among the tombs, And on the mountains, he was always crying out and cutting himself with stones. And when he saw Jesus from afar, he ran and fell down before him. And crying out with a loud voice, he said, What have you to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I adjure you by God not to torment me. For he was saying to him, Come out of the man, you unclean spirits. And Jesus asked him, What is your name? He replied, My name is Legion, for we are many. And he begged him earnestly not to send them out of the country. Now a great herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside, and they begged him, saying, Send us to the pigs, let us enter them. So he gave them permission, and the unclean spirits came out and entered the pigs, and the herd, numbering about 2,000, rushed down the steep bank of the sea, and drowned in the sea. The herdsmen fled and told it to the city, and and told it the city and in the country. And people came to see what it was that had happened. And they came to Jesus and saw the demon-possessed man, the one who had had the legion sitting there, clothed and in his right mind. And they were afraid. And those who had seen it described to them what had happened to the demon-possessed men and to the pigs, and they began to beg Jesus to depart from their region. And he was, as he was getting into the boat, the men who had been possessed with demons begged him that he might be with him. And he did not permit him, but said to him, Go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you, and how he has had mercy on you. And he went away and began to proclaim in the Decapolis how Jesus had done for him, how much Jesus had done for him, and everyone marveled. What is the worth of human life? How much is human life worth? You may remember in 2010, 33 Chilean miners were trapped in what is known as the Copiapó mining accident. As the miners worked over three miles into the mine, a section of the mine caved in, trapping the miners deep into the mine. 
17 days into the ordeal, search teams were able to locate the miners through a borehole. The miners sent a note back up attached to the drill that read, Estamos bien en el refugio, los 33. We're fine in the shelter, all 33 of us. This set off a giant rescue effort involving the mine owners. Virtually every Chilean government agency, NASA, and others. An investment of over $20 million. After 69 days, after being trapped for 69 days, all 33 miners were rescued via a borehole as they were raised to the surface in a capsule called Phoenix 2. The name of the capsule is appropriate because like a phoenix, these men were dead deeply buried in the heart of the earth. But the commitment of many to uphold the dignity of their lives, of the human life, brought them back to life. Today, in our text, we'll meet a man who was alive, but he was dead. Completely cut off from society, he was a tomb dweller, who felt more comfortable around the dead than around the living. This is an uncomfortable, grotesque story. Unlike last week's story of Jesus calming the sea, most Sunday school teachers do not teach this story to children. And artists don't often look to this story as an inspiration for their paintings. Commentator James Edward affirms that this is one of the most lamentable stories of human wretchedness in the Bible. This man's humanity was stolen from him, his dignity kept from him. All that was left in him was complete misery. This man was Satan's greatest success story. This man is an illustration of what Satan desires to do to you and to me. Satan is constantly seeking ways to rob humans of the dignity once given to them by God. But God is constantly working to restore human dignity for our good and for his glory. And this is what we see in our text today. Satan hates when humans experience dignity because when we humans experience proper dignity, we reflect the image of God. But Jesus came to defeat the schemes of the devil and to rescue us, fallen men, trapped in the doings of Satan and to give us his image. 1 John 3, 8, the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. Remember that throughout the month of January, we are focusing on Jesus' power. We have a series within a series in the series of Mark. Last week, we saw his power over disaster. 
This week we see his power over demons. And the, for the next two weeks we're going to see his power over disease and power over death. So let's turn to our text today as we consider this man's journey, which ought to be our journey from destitution to dignity. So first, let us consider destitution. Remember where we were last week after an entire day of teaching. Jesus and his disciples depart the boat from Capernaum into the Sea of Galilee. Their goal was to come to the other side of the sea. But at some point in their journey, they are faced with a great storm. The disciples fear greatly while Jesus peacefully slept. But in their fear, they did the right thing. They ran to Jesus for refuge. Jesus demonstrated his divine power and authority by speaking into the seas and unto the storm. And what did the seas and the storm do? They obeyed. So, for the rest of the, ni the night, they sailed away on placid waters. All that just for them to arrive on the other side, on the east end of the lake, probably at dawn, because these stories happen immediately after each other. And at the other side of the lake, they're met by another storm. This storm, however, came in the form of a man. They arrive at an area Mark calls the country of the Gerasenes. Matthew calls it the country of the Gadarenes. It's the same area. It, it's the difference between a city and a county. They both refer to the same location. This area is east of the Sea of Galilee. And this is Gentile country. Call it Decapolis, ten cities. This is the first time since the end of chapter 1 that our geographic location changes from Capernaum to elsewhere. As Jesus steps out of the boat, immediately, Mark's favorite word, immediately he is met by the man with an unclean spirit. This is another way of saying this man had a demon. And as we're going to see in a few verses... This man was possessed by many demons. It's impossible to overlook here how overwhelming the sequence of events were. From a full day of ministry to trouble at sea to then meeting one of the most grotesque figures in the entire Bible. A demon is a fallen angel. When Satan led the rebellion in heaven, God cast out a third of the angels from heaven and they were left to roam around as unembodied spirits, meaning they don't have a body. So often, demons look for hosts, for bodies, so they can dwell in. If you look at verses 3 to 5, what you see here is a parenthetic 
description of this man. This man lived alone. So the tomb dweller, his companions, the dead, and the demons. He was cut off from his fellow men. His violence was erratic, which caused the people of the city to try to bind him. But this man was clearly endowed with supernatural, satanic strength. He was unrestrainable. Mark says, no one had the strength to subdue him, so he lived alone. This gives us the first glimpse at the schemes of the devil, not just for this man, but for all of humanity. The devil loves to seclude men from one another. His relationship with the outside world was restricted to others seeking to keep him from coming into contact with them. Perhaps this man is an extreme example of seclusion, but in reality, we too experienced, we too experienced what this man experienced, don't we? We live in an age of communication, and yet never have we experienced such separation from one another. We can work from home and never see co-workers. We can live with our families and yet engage with devices rather than with one another. We can have every imaginable purchase delivered to our doorsteps without ever having to speak to one person. We see thousands of people on social media daily and yet relate to none. So much has changed in our world in the past three years. Before 2020, I only remember having to cancel a Sunday morning service once because of a hurricane. It was an unfathomable proposition in my mind. And yet, here we are post-pandemic and our collective view of the importance of the fellowship of believers is marred. Many churches canceled service on the Lord's Day because it fell on Christmas Day. How low have our collective view gotten of the importance of the gathering of believers? We have to plead with people to have a proper and biblical view of the importance of the Lord's day. But God has designed the church to fend off seclusion. The word ecclesia, which gives us the word church, simply means assembly. Therefore, to be a church is to assemble. Hebrews 10, 24, the classic text about the gathering of believers tells us, and let us consider how to stir up one another for to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together. So how do we encourage one another? By not neglecting to meet together. And it is the habit of some, but encouraging one another. And all the more as you see the day drawing near. Satan wants you to believe you do not need others. He wants you to believe the gathering of the church, the fellowship of believers, is not vital for your life. But friends, seclusion is of the devil. But God brings us together. Notice also that the devil loves to rob men of their dignity. The picture we see of this man is a shameful picture. The account in the Gospel of Luke of the same story 
adds that this man had no clothes. And he had been naked for a long time. His exposed body, scraped with stones and cuts. Nakedness in the Bible indicates the exposure of shame. We see Adam and Eve in the garden before the fall, before sin entered the world, and we read, and the man and his wife were both naked, and because there was no sin, they were not ashamed. This is a picture of innocence. Innocence is good. Innocence is the state that God created us to experience. But when it comes to sin, innocence is a beautiful and desirable thing. But after the fall, after Satan created a wedge between Adam and Eve, we read, then their eyes were both open and they knew that they were naked. The shame of nakedness. The shame of exposure, exposing that which should be covered, exposing that which should be hidden. This man experienced that. Again, this may be an extreme example for us today, but we live in an overly exposed, shameful society, don't we? Hypersexualization. Men and women who expose themselves and Pursue the nakedness of others through, through pornography, banalizing those who are made to reflect the image and the glory of God. Pornography is a terrible sin. It dehumanizes, humiliates, shames God's creation. It speaks lies of God's glory. It affects individuals, but it doesn't stay there. It affects families. It affects communities. It affects churches. It is a practice that falls under the control of the devil. And we must say no to any kind of sexual expression that is beyond or outside the protecting walls of marriage. Yes, this world is filled with shame. We see it constantly. But friends, there is hope. Jesus' victory on the cross defeated shame. The spiritual realm composed of Satan and his demons who are at work to shame us was put to shame by Christ. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him, in Christ. Friends, the first step towards victory over shameful acts is to come to Christ so we can be delivered from Him who is on a mission to shame us. Friends, the first step towards proper dignity is to find victory in the grace of Christ. Accountability is wonderful. But friends, accountability can only go so far. But if we see the beauty of creation, the innocence of creation in light of the grace of Christ. If we find the power of the Spirit that teaches us to renounce ungodliness, friends, then we truly find hope and we truly find dignity. On the cross, Jesus 
took the shame of the shameful. Hebrews 12, 2, who, Jesus, for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross, despising the shame, and is now no longer in shame, but is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. But Jesus is full of dignity. How could he die a death of shame? It wasn't his shame. It was yours. And it was mine. Friends, the whole story Mark wants us to see is that Jesus would take on the place of this man and experience his shame on his behalf. Mark wants us to see the seclusion of this man and understand that this man was set free from this seclusion because Jesus was secluded himself. This man's sorrow anticipated Jesus' sorrow. On the cross, Jesus became destitute for the destitute. Isaiah 53, by oppression and judgment, he was taken away as for the, his generation who considered that he was cut out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgressions of my people. And they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death. Although, okay, unlike that man, unlike you and I, he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. This man's story is an invitation, friends, for you who feel secluded. This man's story is an invitation, friend, for you who feel ashamed to find dignity in Christ. The call is not for us to correct our past. The call is for us to today set our eyes on Jesus and allow Him to restore that which was lost. So do you carry shame? Do you feel seclusion? Believe in Jesus. Run to Him. Throw yourself at His feet. Confess your sins and trust that He has taken on your guilt and your shame on the cross. And friends, as Jesus rises on the third day, He declares victory over shame and sin. And this is the only way we too find victory over shame and sin. In Christ. In Him. Now, Notice the tension in verses 6 and 7. The demon-possessed man is both attracted and afraid of Jesus. It is hard to even know what's going on here, but that seems to be a struggle between the man and the demons. He runs towards Jesus and falls before him. The word here, proskuneo, is often used or translated as worship. No, I don't think the demon was worshiping Jesus, but he knew that Jesus was worthy of honor. He knew who Jesus was. He wasn't told, hey, that's Jesus. He knew it was him. Why? Because even demons know their creator. 
Even demons know their Lord. He knew Jesus from eternity past. So he cries out to Jesus, What have you to do with me? In other words, he's saying to Jesus, Jesus, leave me alone. Let me do my wicked things alone. And then he recognized Jesus for who he is. He says, Son of the Most High God. Remember the disciples' question at the end of last week's passage, right? As they see Jesus speaking into the storm, turning away the storm, they, they ask, who then is Jesus? Who then is this? They don't know. They're wondering. Well, the demon answers the question. This is the Son of the Most High God. And the demon knew Jesus had arrived. And if Jesus has arrived, judgment day is near. He asked Jesus, he adjures him by the name of God, not to torment him. Luke says that the demons asked not to be sent into the abyss. Matthew adds that the demons asked that Jesus had come uh, to torment them before the time. The demons are actually saying, it is not time yet. It is not time yet for you to judge us. The Apostle John uses the same word here, translated torment, for Satan's eternal punishment. And the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur, where the beast and the false prophets were, and they will be tormented. Same word. Day and night forever and ever. The demon knew not only who Jesus was, but he also knew what Jesus was going to do. Jesus came to destroy the works of the devil. Jesus came to judge the devil and his minions to torment and punishment in the fire of eternal hell. Jesus asks his name, and the demon responds, Legion. Because we're many. A legion was the largest military unit in the Roman army comprised of about 6,000 soldiers. Clearly the, power, the powers of hell were overwhelming this man. The demons recognized Jesus' authority over them. They asked for permission. They asked for mercy. Not to be cast out of the country. So Jesus grants them their request. Unlike the people of the city, Jesus did not try to subdue or restrain the man. No. He delivered him. He transformed him. And friends, this is the great difference between the solutions that Jesus offers and the solutions that the world offers. The world offers us band-aids. Jesus offers us the cure. So he gives the demons permission to enter the pigs. What about the pigs? There are many questions that we can ask about them, right? Why 2,000 pigs? Why not just let the demons out of the men so they can roam around? Why, why did the pigs have to drown in the lake? Does Jesus care about the life of the animals? What about what happens 
to the demons once the pigs die. Mark doesn't seem to be interested in addressing any of these questions. Therefore, my answer to all of these questions is, I don't know. The text doesn't tell us. But I do think that there are a couple of things that we can learn from this experience here. First, the 2,000 pigs tell us that this man was under severe demonic power. The pigs are a visual indication of the invisible power that was at work within this man. But the 2,000 pigs also remind us that the power of Jesus is greater than the power of Satan. Jesus is not fending off his rival, his equal. Jesus' power is infinitely greater. Why? Well, at this point, Mark is fleshing out more of the first verse that he gave us, right? The gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. How could Jesus be this powerful? Because Jesus is God. But also it is important for us to remember that the 2,000 pigs remind us that humans are categorically superior in importance to animals. 2,000 pigs for one man, it is worth it. Animals are not our brothers. We are the crown of creation and we have been called to exercise dominion over the animal world, not live with them as equal. We're created in the image of God, and we're called to treat animals in a humane way, yes. But never confuse our value for theirs. Which leads me to my second point. This man's encounter with Jesus led him from a state of destitution to a state of dignity. So let us consider this man's dignity. This event was so significant, both the restoration of the demon-possessed men and the drown drowning of the 2,000 pigs, that it became the talk of the town. The pig herders certainly incurred significant financial loss, I'm sure the site was an eerie sight, so the news spread quickly. But when the people came to see what happened, what they first noticed is this, what Jesus offers to everyone, transformation. They saw transformed men. Romans 12, verse 2, do not be conformed to this world, the world offers confirmation, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. 1 Corinthians 5.17, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. These people saw a man who no longer was who he was before. They saw transformation, and they saw a drastic transformation. What do we see here? They found the, de the de formerly demon-possessed men fitting. Once they tried to subdue him, but not even the shackles and chains were able to restrain him. But now he does not need others to subdue him. He has self-control. 
He has a sound mind. He has a renewed mind. He's clothed. His dignity is restored. His shame has been covered. This was like one of those complete makeover videos. I don't know if you've seen one of them. People will find a person who has severely neglected their personal dignity and will do a complete makeover to them, shower, shave, haircut, new clothes. It is impressive to see how even on the exterior, we're able to capture the dignity of a person restored. This is what happened to the man. He experienced a total makeover. Notice also that the people said he had had a demon. It's a, it's a funny structure, grammatical structure here. Or, or maybe your version says that he had been demon-possessed. This is the way to denote a perfect participle in English. A perfect participle is a complete action or event in the past. It is part of your past. And the only thing that remains in the presence is the completed nature of this event. No longer can he be identified as the demon-possessed man. No, that's part of his past. That is part of his history. But also notice this. His past is not erased. People know his past. People know who he was. Christian transformation does not require us to hide our past. On the contrary, we view our past as shameful and secluded as it might have been, we view it as an evidence of God's grace in our lives. We recognize that that which once amounted to our shame now amounts to God's glory. I wonder if you feel ashamed of your past. I wonder if you wish your past was erased. Friends, God gave you the experiences you've had in your past, the headheads of your life, so He could be glorified in your redemption. 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 11. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor the idolatrous, nor the adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Now listen to this. And such were some of you. But you have been washed you were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. We all in this congregation are filled with shameful pasts. But we have been washed. We have been sanctified. We have been justified. Therefore, do not look for your glory in the past, but look for your glory in the present in the work that Christ has done and is doing in your life. Now notice verse 15. The people re reacted with fear. 
Verse 17 is surprising, shocking. The people asked Jesus to leave. Now, why were they afraid? Why did they want Jesus to leave? I spent some time this week thinking about this, and I think they wanted Jesus to leave because they understood that that which happened to the former demoniac was indicative of what would happen to them if they stayed close to Jesus. Nearness to Jesus necessitates transformation. Darkness is comfortable for the blind. Transformation is hard. It confronts us when we need to change. It challenges us in our status quo. John 3, 19, and this is the judgment that light has come into the world and people loved the darkness rather than light because their works were evil. Darkness is comfortable for those who are okay with evil works. Friends, Jesus comes near, His holy light shines into the hidden sinful corners of our lives. Hebrews 4.13, And no creature is hidden from His sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of Him to whom we must give account. One time at another church, another pastor and I went to visit a member of the church that was struggling emotionally and mentally in significant ways. We went to visit him at his house, and his mom, an unbeliever, was there. She met us first. She was kind and welcoming. But she told us that she was convinced that we were the source of that man's problems. She told us that before he started going to church and professing faith in Christ, he had a girlfriend, had friends. He would go to parties. He lived a normal life. But once he started going to church and professing faith in Christ, he stopped everything. And that was the cause of his problems. That's exactly how the people reacted. Jesus brings change, but we don't want change. We don't like change. Darkness is comfortable. But Jesus brings about light. If the most wicked men among all of the people in the city experience such change, what should the people of the city expect for themselves? But notice the response of the former demoniac completely different from the people of the city. What did he want? He wanted Christ. He wanted change. He wanted light. He wanted life. And he didn't care if that meant his entire life would be set upside down. Here's what he experienced. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness. That's where he was. By the way, that's where the people of the city remained. And transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. He chased after Jesus and made a simple request to him. He wanted to follow Christ as one of his disciples. His transformation was not just skin deep. His transformation was not just in the clothes that he wore. 
Friends, when we truly meet Christ, transformation takes place at a heart level. Our desires change. Our plans change. Our goal in life changes. Is this your story? Were you once lost in shame, but you're now dressed in dignity? Or are you like the people in the city? Jesus, I'm quite all right without you. You can go away now. Uh, Jesus, I know how to live a moral life apart from you. I don't need you to inconvenience me in my plans in life. I don't need you to dictate what the goal of my life ought to be. We're pretty decent society. We're pretty decent people. Jesus, we don't need you. Friends, we have to be very careful to look at ourselves in any way that is dignified apart from Christ. We must be careful not to do that. We can trust in our background, education, ability to make money. We can trust in our families and our spiritual disciplines, our hard work and diligence. We can look at our lives and say, I'm doing all right. Without Jesus, this story is a warning for people who have it together. The kingdom of Christ is for the broken, the destitute, the weak, the shameful. Jesus says in Luke, quoting Isaiah, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because He has anointed me to proclaim the good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim the liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set liberty to those who are oppressed. To proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Friends, examine your hearts. Is the pride of life keeping you from coming to Jesus as the poor, the captive, the blind, the oppressed? No, we who come to Jesus are not strong. We are weak. This man wanted to be counted as one of Jesus' disciples. And yet, the town wanted nothing to do with Jesus. Well, this man's request sounds like a great aspiration, doesn't it? Sounds like a great plan. Jesus, I would like to be one of your disciples. But sometimes, even if we have good ministerial aspirations, the Lord may have a different plan for us. God said, Jesus said, you are to be a missionary. Jesus' commission to this man was to be the first missionary to the Gentiles. He sends him to Decapolis, the region known as Decapolis, which was a Hellenized, a, a Greek region east of the Sea of Galilee. And he says, you are going to proclaim my glory among those who don't know me. You know what this means? This means Jesus wanted this man to reflect his image to a lost and rebellious world. He didn't commission the people of the city to do that. They were not worthy of bearing the image of Christ. He didn't commission those who looked well put together. No, on the contrary, he rejected the people of the town. The image of God that was marred in this man's experience covered by shame and destitution was then renewed. 
And how this man reflected the image of Christ. This is complete restoration. This is complete transformation. Jesus says to him, go home to your friends and tell how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. And immediately the man obeyed. And all marvel at the work of the Lord, the work that the Lord had done in his life. Friends, our experience in Christ must go from transformation to proclamation. Mark, not this Mark, that Mark. Mark said this word earlier, right? Are you going to go? Who is going to go? Who is going to go to the thousands of people groups who have not heard of what Christ has done in your life? Why not you? Why not us? We're called to proclaim what wonderful things the Lord has done for us. Oh, how we must be called, or how we must be like this called and changed man, that our lips must, must be restless with the message of reconciliation. We must say redeemed. I love to proclaim how we must yearn to evangelize a lost and distracted world. Friends, has the Lord saved you from the fire and condemnation of hell, from eternal condemnation? Has He not given you life and dignity? Has He not done wonderful things in your life? Will you then proclaim His excellencies to a lost world who desperately needs to be delivered from the power and the presence of the devil will you respond to the call of jesus in your life today would you pray with me father how we need to learn from this story how often lord our lips are quiet how often lord our hearts are not burning with the beauty of the gospel how often lord we do not share the excellencies of christ but Father, if we've experienced your mercy, help us. Help us experience full transformation into a proclamation of who Jesus is. Lord, we long to see our city transformed. We long to see our country transformed. Lord, we long to see this world transformed. So we plead with you, take our lives and let them be consecrated unto you, Lord. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. Take my